New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Comedy Legacy Series. I'm Jim Mendrinos, your host. And today, it's going to be an awesome, awesome episode. Um, there's something really fun about watching a comic from the beginnings when they're when they're brand spanking new straight through to when they achieve their dreams and goals and i've gotten to do that with this next performer gina brione i have known for so so long and uh, i was there when she was doing horrible little one-nighters in the city and you know and i watched her specials as they started airing on hbo and on amazon and she has been a consummate professional the entire way through. Um, you guys probably know her from all her TV appearances, but we're going to get to talk craft. We're going to get to talk process. Sit back, relax, enjoy this next hour with Gina Brion. All right, so this one is one you guys are sure to going to enjoy. Uh, we got Gina Brion with us here, and I know uh, we were just reminiscing before we got on the air. I, I think I know Gina 137 years. <laughs> That's a roundabout. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. The earth cooled and then we were both up on ha is uh, kind of how it happened. By the way, we're both immortal. That's exactly yeah. how yeah. we alive that many years. Nobody can tell how old either of us are. So that's always a good thing. <laughs> that's how we like it. Yeah. Let's, uh, I want to talk about that early time because I was around you and I saw you deal with an epic amount of shit in order to get your stage time. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, so, um, and, and quite frankly, there were times where I was turning to people going, lay the fuck off, you know, because it, it was too much. What made you keep coming back while you were getting that much flack? Oh, man. Uh, besides my obsession with comedy, like it's just a sickening obsession. Uh, I think it was just, I, I knew from watching, you know, you were the, one of the first headliners I ever worked with and you gave me such a great piece of advice. Um, that's going to sound really messed up. But <laughs> trust me, it was a great piece of advice. It was okay. one of the first, uh, I think it was, you were the first person I think I ever opened for. And I was super nervous because just like now, I respect you. I think you're one of the absolute best. Oh. and. And so I asked you at the end of our uh, night working together, and we were working in this little shit bar. Um, On Staten Island, I remember it. And um, <laughs> I was so nervous. I was so incredibly nervous. And at the end of the night, I asked you on our ride back, I said, do you think I'm a good comic? And you said, no, but you will be. Yeah. And I never forgot that i it never it's funny because i think a lot of people would hear that and would get cocky and angry and and not listen to the point of it is that i knew that where i was at that point i was i needed to get better i knew i needed to get better and i knew that it just took work and when you're working with somebody who is like who's been through it who's been through the ringer who is at headliner status now and they tell you something like that, it actually gave me a lot of hope because I was like, oh, 
this person didn't just tell me to quit. They just said, I will get better. So yeah. if he thinks I'm going to get better. And I think that thought stuck with me so that whenever I got flack from somebody, I think in the back of my mind was like, well, Jim Mandrino's thinks I'm going to be somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of that was like, well, you're wrong because I've been told I'm going to be good. And I just had to keep brushing off the, the hate as much as I could and all the stress and everything and have my goal in sight, which was just to be a great comic. That was the only goal. There was no, I want to be famous. There was no, I want a million dollars. I was just like, I want to be a great comic. That was the goal. Well, let's, um, cause I remember, I remember that. And I remember, you know, I remember a little bit differently, kind of like your face washing out of color. I was I so nervous. That. I was so nervous that I had, you have to understand, I don't have the balls to ask questions like that yeah. a lot. And so the fact that I even asked that question, I was so scared of what you would say to me because I had only been around a lot of bullies. Yeah. A lot of mean comics who like, when you're a newer comic and you ask a question like that, they just brush you off or they get annoyed or, you know, they toddle in you and give you a speech that's filled with a million negative things. <laughs> but if it's any consolation, Todd Lynn gave me that speech too when I was ahead of him on the food chain. Oh, Todd Lynn told me one of the first times he saw me at the Times Square Comedy Club that used to be the Love Factory. He said, you're the only female comic. He said, you're the best female comic they have at this club and you're still just mediocre. And that was a Todd Lynn compliment. Like yeah. I was like, Oh my God, he thinks I'm mediocre. Thank you. <laughs> he didn't say I suck. What, what I remember, because um, I've watched your career through the years. You're one of my favorites to watch. You know, well, I love watching a performer who loves being on stage because there's a whole lot of comics that don't like being on stage. You know, so when I see someone that goes up there and feeds up a love of the audience, I sit in the back of the room and I watch because... I started as a comedy fan and all these years later, I'm still a comedy fan. Yeah. So the difference I saw, and I want to, I want to kind of get from you when it happened or how it happened. Cause I think it's important for comics to learn from you went from trying to please the audience to doing the stuff that you really love. Cause when you first started, you, you were writing the same bits that other comics do, which I think we all do when we start. Oh yeah. I was writing stuff that like, and I was married to it. I would never divert from it. Um, and part of that was a lot of fear. Fear of like, if I don't get the laughs, because you have to understand too, like when you're starting in the game, your biggest thing is like, I need to get laughs because if I don't prove that I'm funny, this club is not going to book me anymore. If I don't get laughs, I can't really take chances because if I suck at this point, then I'm never going to get booked here again. So in your mentality is like, I better do as good as possible, even if it's with complete shit comedy that I don't, I don't think is actually anything I want to be saying, but it's so surface level and you're getting laughs and people tell you stuff and you get all this advice. And I was getting all this advice from people on what lane to stay in. And there was always this little thing in me that was like, oh gosh, but I don't think this is me. I don't think this is me, but I did it. I did it anyway. Um, I wrote to people, please. Mm -hmm. And I think in the beginning of your career, that's what you do. You write to people, please. And so like four or five years in, I think what happened was I started getting more television work and I started getting more respect. And then I started writing whatever I wanted about four or five years in. I was like, 
you know what? I'm just going to try this. And it was baby steps. It was like, I'm going to try this bit and see if it works. And then you do one bit where you're sort of outside of your, your normal writing. And then that does well. So then you keep that one in your set and then you add another bit to that. And you go, well, what if I wrote about this? And you just kind of keep baby stepping it. At least for me, it wasn't like a full get rid of everything. And some people do it that way where they get rid of everything and they just start writing what they want and, you know, force themselves in that position of like breaking into a new part of themselves. And and for me, it was baby steps. I was like, let me introduce this and then this and slowly weeding out all the stuff that I didn't feel like was me anymore. Like I'm over that stuff. That's not me anymore. So let's try to put that in. And a lot of times too, the only shows I could book in the beginning were like the Latino Chitlin Circuit shows. Yeah. That's, and that's such a specific crowd of people that wants a specific type of material in order to survive in those rooms. I was like, well, I better write like the rest of these guys. <laughs> yeah, Otherwise yeah. I'm screwed because they would eat me alive. And so I would say probably around four or five years when I felt a little more confidence because of, I think I got my first commercial for Comedy Central about four or five years in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get your first commercial and people make a big deal out of it. And then you no longer have to stand outside and hand out flyers at every place to get on stage because now you have a TV credit. And then I got my second thing on Comedy Central. And then I think I did Live at Gotham and it just kind of like kept going and I kept going and I started doing more mainstream rooms. I started working the road more. And so you have to diversify your material because if you don't, you're on the road talking about all your New York stuff and nobody understands it because they're not from New York. And the biggest eye-opening experience was I did a tour in London. Um, How many years was I in? I was about 10 years in when I went to London for the first time. And I had already diversified my material enough, but I was super nervous to go overseas and do comedy because I was like, are they going to get me? Like, are they even going to like me? Like, do they like Americans over there? Like, I was like, I have no idea what to expect. And I went over there and it was an amazing experience. I mean, I was received really well. I absolutely fell in love with London and the comedy scene out there. And I love British comics. I love, I'm a huge Eddie Izzard fan. And so it was everything I wanted it to be. And I, you know, I love performing out there, but those experiences make you grow. The fact that I went out there, the fact that I experienced that, that changed my writing. So I think it's with every experience, you should change a little bit, but give it some time. Everybody sucks in the beginning. Yeah. And and I always tell people when they ask my opinion, they're like, look at my, YouTube videos for my first five years in stand-up. You would not want that guy giving you advice. Oh, I cringe. Every time I look at an old video of mine, I cringe. I'm like, oh. And my parents love them. They love to show them when I come over. They love to show all of my old videos. And I'm just like, please burn these. Burn (laughs) these. I don't want anyone getting their hands on these. Yeah, you're lucky you're not around in the year of stand-up, stand-up. There was a show in Comedy Central. Stand-up where they collected people's videos. And one day they put uh, like seven sets of mine back to back to back to back from my first TV appearance straight through to the last one I did for them. Oh my God. Yeah. 
I had to go over my stuff for a PBS documentary once. They asked me to send them some old clips. And so I had to go over my stuff. And I was just like, oh, please don't use any of this. Do I have to send you this stuff? Can I maybe stage this? I'll hire a makeup artist. Maybe we can use some CGI and make this look like I'm younger. Oh, uh, I want to talk about your performing because you've always been a really great writer, you know, from, from the get-go. Um, even when you were doing stuff that wasn't you, and the reason why I said I knew you were going to be good is because the writing was there, you know. But the performance, man, you took a turn at some point, and you are just so free on stage. How did that evolve? That was funny because I was always a nervous wreck before getting on stage early on. I was always in the beginning, you're so afraid of not being liked. Like, what if this audience doesn't like me? And because of that, it's like, you know, it's like going on a date. You get so nervous. And I would get I would get this lump in my throat every time on stage. And I was so embarrassed every time it happened. I'd be like, no, I thought I was over this. Like where I would just stop talking and have to like, gulp it was like the most embarrassing thing ever because you could tell I was nervous and I was a kid I was so young when I started um I think the only thing that really made that I can't name an exact point where it happened like I couldn't tell you if it was four years five years six years whatever but I know two things happened that were like defining moments I think about again about four years into my comedy career I forget what comic it was. Somebody I was around regularly at Gladys's Comedy Club in the back of Hamburger Harry's <laughs> <laughs> said to me, um, you know what I love about you? You know your voice. You know, some I forget who it was, but he was like, you have always known your voice. Like I never had to like find out how to be myself on stage. I was just a nervous version of myself on stage. Like, I just couldn't help but be myself on stage because I didn't know any other way to be. I was like, I don't know how to fake a character up here. I don't know how to be another comic up here. I only knew how to be myself. I hadn't ever taken a comedy class. I hadn't ever done anything. I just wanted to do stand-up, became obsessed with stand-up, and then started doing (laughs) stand-up. So (laughs) I had no way of being anything but myself. And then a couple of years later on, like, maybe when I hit like 10 or 11 years, which is usually a point I think for a lot of comics where they start to restructure or they start to get really comfortable in that space where it's like, oh, I'm, I've been doing this now for like a decade. So now that stage has become almost my safe space where that stage now is really my second home. So when I meet like newer comics and they ask me like for advice, I always tell them, Get on stage as much as possible until that stage becomes your home. Like yeah. that stage has got to become your home. Like you have to crave being on that stage all the time. When you're upset, when you need to work something out, when you're in a good mood, bad mood, it doesn't matter. You have to crave being on that stage. Like that's how important it had to be to me in order for me to get that comfortable on stage. Or it was like, You know, and it's still after the first laugh is when you really sit in. Like you get up there with that confidence, but after that first laugh, that's when you really sit into the set where you're like, okay, 
now we're on board. Because the audience is meeting you for the first time, too. Yeah. But once they laugh, and you've gotten them to laugh, there's this equal, like, ah, moment where they know they can trust you, and you know that they're open to what you're saying. So once I started having more of those moments, it just became a thing where it was like, we built that trust right from the start. It's like, I, I knew I needed to build that trust right from the start. And in order to do that, I had to walk on that stage like I owned it. Yeah. Now, it, down to a man, everybody I've interviewed on this show, you know, nobody agrees with how to write. Nobody agrees with how to perform. All of us agree, flood yourself with stage time. That, yeah. Especially in the beginning. That's everyone has said that. I'm still waiting for the one interview where they go, oh, you don't need stage time. I'm waiting for that one because I have questions for that person. Yeah, right. I would love to I would love to hear that person's answer too. <laughs> but here's what I gotta say. When I started, I flooded myself with stage time and I was 19 and there were a whole lot of clubs that I wasn't allowed to come in, you know, into because of my age. You started 17. Um Latina, female. I witnessed people give you some shit that I wanted to punch people in the face. Oh, yeah. You know, when, you know, every time somebody goes, you know, female comics don't have it rougher than male comics, I go, oh, yeah, they do. Because yeah. I saw that firsthand with you. I saw that firsthand with Liz Mealy. I even saw it with Leanne, and she was a veteran yeah. by that point. How did you, you know, what advice do you have for, for somebody that's going through that? Because it's just as bad now as it was back then. Just oh, yeah. different. Well, yeah, it's just as bad now. It's a little more, more covert because people are afraid of getting pinched with a hashtag now. Um, yeah, which good. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're afraid. Welcome to our world as women in general. Um, for me, I think, I first of all, I was a ballsy chick from the Bronx. I was always that kid that like if you told me not to do it that was the first thing I was gonna do if you told me I wasn't funny it was the first thing I was gonna prove you wrong like I was just that kid plus having my family support my dad was always the kind of person and this always made me laugh my dad always told me growing up if somebody doesn't like you fuck them and like that was my dad's attitude my dad was always like who gives a shit like my my dad taught me that so it was like I'm not gonna convince somebody a booker or whatever. And I had some incidents where it was like, you know, bookers made it clear how they saw me in the industry. Yeah. And I guess I could have taken it personally. And it was really hard in the beginning not to take it personally, but I knew if I wanted to survive in this business, there was a part of me that had to go, okay, well, fuck that guy. I'm out. If he didn't want to work with me. And I always had this attitude of like, I'm not going to beg you for stage time. I'm not going to demean myself for stage time. I'm not going to sleep with you for stage time. And I'm not going to let you disrespect me for stage time. So if any of those things ever happened, you know, I was always like, okay, not going there anymore. Do you want to work with me? No. Okay, cool. Not going there anymore. Do you want to work with me? Yes. I'll be there every night. Thank you so much. And that's literally how I just did everything. I was like, if it was a crap bar that wanted me to be there every night, I would be there every single night to work that as long as I was respected and as long as I was, you know, treated like a real comic, a legit comic. I wasn't babied or coddled and I wasn't ignored either. I wasn't treated just like a female. 
you know, I was treated like somebody who was amongst her peers. And those were the places I gravitated towards, even if they were small places. Like I was at Gladys's for a really long time. And then what was the other one they used to do? All these little tiny rooms, man, um, where I used to hand out flyers. And I didn't care. I'd rather hand out flyers and have to sleep with a booker to get stage time. Yeah. I'd rather do that. I was also... (laughs) I had also told a couple of guys, too, like, being a chick from the Bronx, after having my first couple of sexual harassment incidents, I got into the habit of letting guys know if they wanted to hang out. Like, if we were all hanging out, I would let them know right from jump. I said this to so many guys, and it scared them, and it should. I just said, look, I'm cool right now. We can all hang. But if at any point I feel like I'm threatened, I am going to beat your ass. And I'm very serious about beating your ass if you make me feel uncomfortable. Are we clear? (laughs) (laughs) And it became a speech that I would regularly give. Like, are we clear on the guidelines? There is no sexual tension. I do not want to sleep with you. I am here because I want to hang out. If it gets weird, I will punch you in your genitals. Do you understand? <laughs> and it, it just became like a thing where it was like, all it, and then they were so respectful after that. It was setting the guidelines of don't be an idiot. So, so to just recap, you're giving the advice to young female comics, threaten to punch them in the balls. Absolutely. <clears throat> set that <laughs> line right away. Just set that line right away. Because what would happen and what I notice with a lot of guys is you're a young female comic, you're hanging out late, they get the wrong impression because you're hanging out with all these dudes and maybe you're treating them like the guys in your neighborhood you've known for years or you're treating them like your brothers. You're, get, you're just, you're relaxed, your guard is down. And so they think something's up. I literally had, I won't say who, I literally had a night where I was hanging out with two male comics and they wanted to go drinking all night. And I said, cool, yeah, sure, no problem. I'm hanging out. I've hung out with these dudes before. They're cool. They're chill. They know, blah, blah, blah. We end up going back to one of their, uh, one of the guy's houses to drink, right? At that time, I was an avid runner. I would get up at 5 a.m. and I would run. It's two or three in the morning, and I was like, guys, I'm going for a run at 5 a.m. Like, it's going to happen. Like, and they're trying to fill me with wine coolers. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm, I got to run. I'm, I'm good. I drank enough. I'm going to take a nap. One of the guys offers one of his rooms, right? I go take a nap or attempt to take a nap. But something told me not to trust the situation. So I didn't go to sleep right away. I kind of sat up, and I was, like, contemplating. I was like... You know, I know these guys, but they're filling me with drinks. They're trying to get me to drink more. I don't think this is a really safe environment right now. One of the guys comes in the room. I'm supposed to be sleeping, mind you. He comes in the room. We end up having a conversation about comedy. I find out later that the uh, the only reason he came in was because the other guy had told him if you don't go in there and try to have sex with her, I will. Mm. When I tell you to set the bar, that's the reason why. I tell yeah. you to set the bar right away 
because you let people know, like there is nothing here, there is no chance whatsoever of this happening and you will get physically hurt. This is how far women have to go though. I can't be nice about it because nice sends the wrong signal. I have to be that um, kind of abrasive and almost unfriendly. And dare I say, bitchy. (laughs) As we are always labeled whenever we become aggressive. I'm like, I'd rather you call me a bitch and hate me than you take advantage of me. It's not bitchy when it's justified. Yeah. That's unfortunate. I got to ask this, though, because you're in a power position now. Like, now you've finally become one of those comics that other comics need to kiss your butt. You know, and, (laughs) and you know what I mean by that. You know, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So has it changed? Have you found that the, the relationships between the shitty people have changed in your direction? Yes. And that's so unfortunate to me because I hate that. I hate that feeling of like, oh, you were never into me. You never supported me. And now all of a sudden you're all about being my friend and congratulating me. And now you want to work on a project with me. And it's. You know, you do a hard eye roll. I'm not a person that, like, holds on to grudges, but I am a person that sees the situation for what it is. And so I'm like, the only reason, if the only reason you have ever ever wanted to work with me was because now I have some clout and you think that clout can benefit you, then I will never work with you. That's just the thing. Like, I I will never work with you because I see right through it. Even if it's a really great idea, I will tell you to take it elsewhere because I know the real reason behind, I know what you're motivated by. Yeah. And you're just looking for somehow for me, for our relationship to benefit you. Now you want a relationship with me professionally when for years, and this, I mean, and this happened several times, especially within the last year where I was like, Oh, you're somebody who told me I was never funny, and now you want to work with me. Oh, you're somebody who never supported me, but now you're all congratulations on my Facebook wall. Like bookers that never booked me. I had a booker tell me one time, and it was so funny because it was a friend of mine, another friend of mine. He said, you're not a spot comic. You're a host. And it was one of those things where like, first of all, First of all, I know some amazing hosts that are also great spot comics. You can't be a great host without being a great spot comic. It's just, you have, it's a skill that you build. You know, you can be a great comic that does spots that can never host. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know plenty of people, famous comics I've worked with that are amazing comedians and hate hosting to their core because they know they're not good at it. But when he said that to me, it was in a text message and I didn't respond because it was, I was looking for stage time to work out material for my first special and I didn't respond right away. I got a, a text message back. Well, I don't want you to think that I don't respect you and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, my text back was, you just showed me you don't respect me. Like you, and that's fine. I know where we stand now. Never called him again. Never worked his club again. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. And I know that's a scary thing. For like a lot of people, but but I don't get stage time like that. Yeah, well, I didn't either. So I had to now go and hustle and work for my stage time. And I did. I went everywhere. 
It didn't matter. As long as you said I could work your stage, that was fine. But being, being in this position now, again, it's just about filtering out the garbage. Yeah. You got to filter out the crap. I know who messes with me, who's always been supportive of me, and the people, and I also know the people that have never supported me. You always keep a list in your head of those people. Like, I will never forget what you said. I'm not going to hold a grudge, but you're on that list of people. Yeah. I've I got to ask you this, because you mentioned, you know, look at the spots uh, for your first special. And you've got a couple of amazing specials out, you know, so that people, if they haven't seen them, they got to see them. But here's what I loved. And, and when I heard about it, I, it just, it made sense because it was you. But it was also one of those moments where I was there, like, that's someone who knows how to do it right. When you were gearing up for your first special, um, you were going to all the big rooms to to warm it up, but you were also going to holes in the wall. You were also going to, you know, places that you were far beyond in terms of industry status, you know, to make sure that you were there, which is dedication, because there's not a lot of comics that are, are willing to go, I fought for 15 years to get out of these rooms, but I'm going back in because I got something to do. And yet you did, which to me, when I heard that, that was just like unbelievable amount of respect for a comic that's going to do that. Now, why? Why did you feel that that was important? Because you were recording in a theater, so you have no reason to be an auto-shrunken head. (laughs) But yet you were, you know? So I I just want to know, what was your mindset? Um, A lot of it was, first of all, because I knew I could. (laughs) I knew I would call them and the chances of them saying, no, you can't have stage time were very slim. So you got to know when to play your cards. (laughs) I was like, I know if I call them right now, as much stage time as I want to get for this special, and the special was what was priority. So my ego about where I was performing, I was like, I could care less about that. Because the special and working out the material was priority. So if I had to go and perform in a little bar area, whatever, just so I could get this 10 minutes out that I'm trying to work or this 20 minutes for the special, I had to work it out in chunks because in the city you're getting 15 to 20 minute spots. And so any place that I could get up, I just, I knew I I had to get on stage. So it just became paramount that it was like, if I got to call Jimmy's Chicken and Chuckle and get on stage at, at that place, then that's where I got to go, you know? And you see it with some other comics that like will come through. Like, um, I love seeing comics come through and do the New York clubs, like huge names like Kevin Hart. Like I love seeing them, you know, really work and not just disappear and then come out with a special. I want to see you work. And for me, I'm always, I've always been such a workaholic. When I have something to work out, I'm on it. I force myself to get on it. I force myself to get up as much as I can, you know, no matter how green the material is, no matter how afraid I am to put new stuff out there because it's a frightening process when you get rid of stuff that you know works and you're trying to put out new stuff. Um, it's just part, it's also part of the beauty of comedy in general It's like, I can go to a hole in the wall bar and do this material because the chances of any industry being there or anybody I care about are very slim. So I'm performing this for you people because I will never see you again. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> now I, I want to talk about that first special because 
there were so many things about that special. And again, I've had the advantage. I've known you, you know, almost from the beginning. You know, I probably met you year two or three yeah, of your journey. Know. You know, uh, so I got to see the evolution. And what I adored about your special was, first of all, it's unabashedly your personality, which is great. But it was also unabashedly and unapologetically female. It was also unabashedly, unapologetically Latina. It, it was you, you know, and it was about as Bronx as you can get. <laughs> as you can get without without being hood. <laughs> which, which I absolutely love. Now, you know, when you do specials, you have a team and, you know, everyone has an influence. Was anybody telling you to tone it down? Was anyone trying to get you to change your vision? Or were you able to wrangle your vision the way you wanted it? Thankfully, I am far too controlling. Um, <laughs> I am really difficult to work with creatively. <laughs> I've learned to be a lot easier. But I, when I have a vision for something, I am almost, I'm married to that vision. And so for me, um, it became a thing where it was like, when we were discussing the first special, first of all, I had Gabriel support since he was producing the special. And that was the best thing ever. Having Gabriel there and having him support me and him being my co-pilot, essentially, nobody was going to go against Gabriel. Yeah. And I knew that. And if he loved the material and he already loved the material, he already loved every concept that I was having. So I was thankful that I had somebody in my corner who was like a bigger name that I could be like, well, Gabriel said I could do it. And so nobody was going to try to fight Gabriel on it. Um, I just had, I just, I knew what I wanted right away from the special. And that was a big part of it. Knowing creatively what I wanted, where I wanted the special to be taped, how I wanted it to look. And there were some people, you know, when it came down to graphics, they would send me some graphics and I'd be like, that looks really ghetto. No, thank you. And I would just, because some people go too hard. They go with stereotypical stuff, either stereotypical <laughs> Bronx stuff or stereotypical Latino stuff. And so it was about me being honest in that moment and saying, I don't like that. I think what happens to a lot of performers is you feel the pressure of, you know, the industry looking at you going, well, we think this is great. And you want to say yes to it to appease them. But I was never like that. I was like, no, this is still my work. This is how I'm going to be first presented to people that don't know my comedy. So it's really important that we get the tone right. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care if they say it's, you know, super Latino or super this or super that. This is how I'm presenting myself. And the people that get it will get it. And the people that don't, fuck them. Like, my, as my dad would say, fuck him. I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. And so that first special, though, that first special, man, that was something else. Because that was, like, 15 years in the making. Like, it was, like, yeah. I had been working for X amount of years and finally got this first special. And I don't think I felt it at the time. Because when the special was over, I was so happy to be over the nerves and over everything that I didn't feel it until the special aired. And when it aired, I remember the special ending and I was just, I was in tears because it was my baby. It was the first thing I had put out. I was like, I can't believe I actually did that. 
And I'm actually proud of everything. I was proud that I looked feminine. I was proud that I was as Latina as I was ever going to be and as Bronx as I was ever going to be. I was proud of all of that. And that what, what to have that feeling, it just, because a lot of women in this business, what ends up happening is that they don't want to look too feminine. Yeah. So they tend to lean towards masculine. And I did that for a long time. I would wear ball caps on stage. I would wear jeans. I would wear t-shirts. I didn't want to look too much like a girl. And then I started to dress more feminine on stage because I was like, wait, you know what? If this is what I want to wear, I should just wear it. Like, why can't I just own it? If I want to wear a dress on stage, I'll wear a dress on stage. If I want to wear a pretty top on stage, why am I so afraid to embrace my feminine side? And it was because I looked at it as a weakness in comedy. And I was like, if I look feminine, I'll be taken advantage of. But if I look masculine, I won't. And then it became, no, that's really more about the control I take in the situation. I can walk in in heels on a dress and be just as, you know, uh, upfront and just as professional as I can in a pair of slacks. So there was a lot about that special that even taught me stuff about myself. Now, I, you know, I remember talking to, you know, there, there's the place where we most got to know each other was the Laugh Lounge. That's probably the place we worked the most together. Yeah. Um, and I remember, uh, and I distinctly remember this because it was a big deal seeing it unfold. Um, Angelo Lozada got off stage, you know, I, and I know we both miss him terribly, um, got off stage and he had just finished something and you came up to him and you gave him a tag for a joke. And anybody who knows Angelo knows that Angelo is just prides himself or as being the counter joke writer. And when you walked away, he went this better than what I had. And I remember that. I remember that distinctly. Wow. You know, you know, and and that acceptance you had from a peer group of people that were 10 and 15 years ahead of you. It has always amazed me. You took more flack from, you know, the guys from your own peer group, you know, your, your own starting pack than the more veteran guys. I remember when you had your special, you know, talking to other veterans about it. And our reaction was, yeah, she killed it. And then I would talk to newer comics and be like, how'd you get that? You know, do you find that there's, do you find that there's an issue when you start with comics and, they don't get the success you have. Do you find that strains the relationship? Here's a great story. So I was part of a, a panel of comedians. And we, were, um, we were meeting with this woman to talk about an idea that she had about talking to young girls about doing stand-up. So it was all female comics and, you know, we're all gathering at this, you know, sort of like, I guess, a WeWork kind of space. And there's a, a young female comic sitting there. I don't know who she is. I come in, I introduce myself, I say hi. She could care less who I am, could care less, right? I go, okay, fine. She's in her own world, whatever. As the female comics start coming in, and these are veteran female comics, these are Corey Kahaney, these are like people that have been in it. And they're all like, oh, hey, Gina, oh my God, hey, Gina, hi. And we're talking, and out of nowhere, this girl who's very new to comedy goes, should I know who you are? 
And I just looked at her and I went, no, not at all. When you start out in comedy, there's this cocky protectiveness that you have of yourself where if I have to act and, and puff my feathers, I have to act bigger than I am because if I don't, then people will think that I suck or I'm weak or I'm hacky or I'm not funny and they won't respect me. When it's much more respectful to humble yourself and stay in your lane, understand, I don't demand that anybody be a fan or like me or whatever. But when it comes to the business of comedy, there is a level of respect you show to people that have been in it longer. Even if you're not a fan of their comedy, they have learned lessons that you have yet to learn. And so understanding that and being respectful of those people, like I used to meet people all the time and whenever I would meet somebody new, one of my first questions to them was like, oh, hi, like, oh, you're, you're a comic too? Like, how long have you been doing comedy? That's my first question. Because that will tell me where you fall, in what lane you fall. If you're going to tell me one or two years, okay, cool. I have a little more experience than you. I kind of know where we stand. If you're 30, 40 years in the game, oh, oh, okay, well, then this person has been around since I was obsessed with comedy at 14. Like, there's a different level of respect of, like, wow, you've been in the game and you've watched the game change from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s. Like, you've watched how the game has changed. And it's so funny because I do notice that so much with newer comics, this bravado of, of yeah, I'm, fun, I'm, fun, I'm hilarious, I'm funny, I'm funny, I'm really hilarious. And I'm like, okay, I kill every time. Do you, bro? Do you? Okay. You know, those people that would walk off stage and bomb and still act like they killed. Those people that can't take a bomb with dignity and understand that there's, like, take it with dignity, bro. Like, there's a lesson in that if you let yourself learn that lesson. And a lot of the lesson is, was it you? Was it the audience? Was it your material? You don't know until you have those experiences. I've had all three of those happen to me. Yeah. Where one where it was me and I bombed. One where it was the audience because the audiences didn't like me or didn't like females or didn't like Latinos. Like I. And then one where it was my material. They just weren't into my material. Where it was just like, eh, this girl tells too long of stories. Or, eh, this just... I don't want to hear another woman talk, you know, it's, and that's what you're dealing with, but you got to learn those lessons. And so I would, it was, it, you know, you bring up a good point because it was weird. I was closer to the veteran comics than I ever was to a lot of my peers for that reason, where I would hang out with the vet comics. They became my big brothers and big sisters in the game. Yeah. Now you and I have a similar story about being teens that are obsessed with comedians, you know, um, for me, and I remember telling you about this when I started, for me, it was Freddie Prince. Okay. You know, I saw Freddie Prince on TV and immediately knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, and, and who were the guys that inspired you at 14 looking at TV that made you go, I want to do this? That's funny. Um, so my new special, I tell the story at the end, of who my inspirations were and how it came about. Um, I was 14 years old 
And I saw Brett Butler. Uh, I saw her her special came out around I think around ninety ninety four, some sometime around then, called Brett Butler Sold Out. It's her second special. Her first special called Brett Butler The Child Ain't Right. For any of you who want to watch it, um, both are great. But Brett Butler Sold Out was the first one I saw, and I was glued to the TV. I was already I was already a fan of making people laugh. I, I was always that kid that loved to see people laughing. Never wanted to see anybody upset. If you were upset, I did my damnedest to make you laugh. And so, I'm I'm watching this woman, and just immediately I was drawn into how intelligent and beautiful and engaging she was. She wasn't, you know, you know, I grew up watching both, you know, Latino TV and American TV. And when you watch Latino TV, you see women on, on there, they're either scantily clad or they're literally dressed like a clown. Like it's literally, those are your two options. You're either the half naked dancer or you have a bunch of clown makeup on. And so here I am watching this woman and she's, got an entire theater full of people that are just mesmerized by her wit and her intelligence alone. She's not using her beauty. She's not using anything. And she's a beautiful woman. She's not using her beauty. She's just smart and funny. And I was just so drawn into it. And I said, at 14 years old, I went, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. Like at 14, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And I became obsessed with comedy and my parents were super supportive. And then the, so the next comic that stood out to me was George Lopez. I had watched him on a show that was on the Spanish channel. Um, I can't remember if he was on Que Loco or there was another show called Risas y Mas Risas, which they were both stand-up comedy shows done on the Spanish channel, but in English. And yep. so... George Lopez was on and I've seen a woman and now I've seen a, a Latino and I'm like, well, I'm a hybrid mix of both. So I can do this in my head. I was like, there's no reason why I could not do this. And I had just watched everything comedy related. I could, I did my first show on the day of my graduation from high school. I went to stand up New York. My mom had entered me in a contest called funniest person from the Bronx. She entered me and my sister. And I wasn't nervous. The first time I went on stage, I wasn't nervous. I was so excited. I was so excited and so I was I would just I was thirsty for that stage. I wanted to be up there. When they called my name, I remember just being like, this is it. This is this like the most exciting ride I could ever be on. And I had a good set and then they bought me back for the callbacks and I bombed horrifically. It was terrible. It was I bombed so bad my second time on stage. I still remember the moment my set was over. I had a prop. This is how bad it was. I had a prop and I forgot to bring it on stage. <laughs> and I had to ask someone to go get the prop from the back. And all I did was stand there in silence until someone grabbed the prop. I was bombing so bad. And I remember getting off stage and just being like, I'm never doing this again after that first bomb. But the next night I was out, like just sitting in a comedy club. I used to walk to the comic strip because I was, I went to Marymount college. So I just walked to the comic strip and I'd sit in the back of the room and watch all these amazing veteran comics. And when I wasn't on stage, I was watching comedy. That's how obsessed I was. 
I, yeah. I had to have comedy every single day in my life. Yeah, that's, it, it is amazing how it gets you, you know, and becomes a religion for those of us that wind up being a, a lifers in this. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about, you've made the jump to theaters um, and in, in watching you perform in them, man, you handle it with grace. You didn't have, it didn't seem like you had that awkward learning curve of learning how to work in theaters. And I know that you did some opening act work yeah. in theaters as well. Did, do you think that helped and oh, shaped yeah. what oh. you did? Totally. Doing a lot of opening act work, doing a lot of hosting work, having as much experience as possible. I'll tell you, doing hosting work, what that taught me was being quick on your toes with a comeback. Um, mainly because you're up and down all night with the audience. They see you all the time. They become friendly with you. People start to talk to you while you're on stage. You had to learn on the fly when you're hosting. Also, when you're hosting, the show isn't about you. And you can make the show about you if you realize the show isn't about you because you're just up there doing your job, guiding the show along. You become their favorite person now because you're guiding the show along. There's no ego in that. You're just like, I'm here to make sure that I set this show up for success. So with all my hosting experience, I knew that if something were to happen on the fly, I could handle it. And then with all my opening experience, I learned how to work a stage. I learned how to work a bigger stage. I had more room to move around. I wasn't on a tiny little stage anymore. So it would look awkward if I stood completely still on this big, magnificent stage. Um, so I learned to kind of work a bigger stage that way. Plus theater comics, comics that eventually made that leap to theater were always my favorite comics. Like, mm -hmm. it's why I loved watching Eddie Izzard. It's why I loved watching Carlin. It's why I love, like, I love seeing comic in that, because there's so much more focus in the theater. You are their only point of focus. It's not like being in a comedy club where there's a million distractions. They only have you to focus on. And it's so amazing when you feel all that energy directed at you. Yeah. And you sort of have control in that moment of all of that energy. And I, lo I love performing in theaters. It was intimidating at first, but because I always wanted to get to theaters, the intimidation, that went away pretty quickly because I always wanted to end up in a theater. So the fact that I was, it was more, it turned into an excitement more than anything else. Where it was like, I can't wait to experience this stage and, and experience this moment. And yeah, it's been, I mean, I went from, I mean, and as an opening act still, because I will still go on tour with Gabriel and open with him. He does arenas. Yeah. And that to me is insane. I mean, to be in that kind of setting, I'm like, I don't even, I don't even begin to understand how, but he has a way about him where he can make an arena feel like the smallest comedy room in the world. Mm. And everybody's so engaged in the show. I mean, it's such an amazing skill to make everybody even up in the rafters. And that's the beautiful thing about comedy. You never stop learning. Yeah. And I'm learning from him all the time every time we go on tour. Now, here's what I particularly loved. In the middle of, like, at the height of your theater tours, um, you were at Gotham to do a spot in the upstairs room, and I was on a show downstairs, and I was short an act. Uh, and it was an opening spot, which is, well, you are well beyond doing that. 
Um, and when I went upstairs and said, I'm short an act, you were there like, I'll do it. And that downstairs stage is a postage stamp. It, it <laughs> so literally is so tiny. And yet I watched you use all the movement you learned from the theater on that tiny stage. Yeah. Now, was that something that you actively had to think of or after learning the lesson on the big stage, it just followed you? I think it just follows me. Like I just, once you learn how to work a stage like that, it's hard to regress. So you just kind of adjust like, okay, I have this much space. I feel like every comic is like um, Tom Cruise and Minority Report. We have that big screen and we're just like, okay, I'm going to move this here and this here. I can do this or this. Okay, what am I working with here? And we're all sort of calculating all of this. That's why I'm amazed by comedians because we have these minds that are doing so many things at once when we're on stage and people don't realize it. We're aware of the space we have to work with. We're aware of the audience and what they're laughing at. We're also aware of our Rolodex of material that's going on in our head and what to do next. There's a million factors that comedians are dealing with when they're on stage. Yeah. And so, and plus I love, I, I still love being at different clubs and different stages. So like whenever, and I can't help it, I'm such a stage whore. Like whenever somebody's like, hey, I'm down a comic, I'm like, I'll do it. I'm like, <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody else want it? At certain clubs, I will say this: there has been there have been times when I've come just as a patron, like I just want to watch comedy, and people have been like, "Oh, you want to get on, right?" And I'm like, "No, I'm good. I just want to. I just want to watch tonight. I don't. I didn't come here ready to work. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, there's still that part of me that's like, you sure you don't want to get on stage? But I'm like, no, I don't want to get on stage. I just want to watch tonight. But it is hard to turn that off. That like. Yeah, audience, and they need me. Yeah, but you have to. You have to have that balance between time for you too. Yeah. You know? Let's talk a little bit about that because you've always been very protective of your personal life. You've always been very protective of making sure that you you mentally keep what you need for you. Um, how important is having a life outside of stand up to do stand up? Super important. Having a life outside of stand-up is, I mean, how are you going to talk about stuff if you're not doing stuff? How are you going to talk about life if you're not living life? Like, I think if you don't have a life outside of stand-up, that well of material starts to run out. Like, you have to have stuff, new memories, new stories, new experiences. It's just as important to have a life outside of stand-up as it is to be responsible about your stand-up work and your stand-up life. Now, I want to talk to you about your process. You know, how often do you write? Do you write every day? Do you keep a calendar or a schedule? And how do you go from concept to preparing it for stage? I don't write every day, um, but I will force myself to write. Um, it's weird because I don't... I don't like to force myself to write, but there are days where I'm like, okay, it's been like three days and you have not worked on anything. So it is time to buckle down and write. And those days I'll sit and I'll take an hour or two and I'll just think of concepts. Like, what do you want to talk about? It's my, always my first question. What do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about being married? You know, do you want to talk about you know, the fact that you're going to be a mom soon. Do you want to talk about this? Like, I'll sit down and I'll just like, be like, all right, well, 
let's take this. And usually it starts off with just ideas. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll start off with the punchline. I'll start off with that. I'll be like, I know this is the punchline. This is what I want to get to. Now I have to figure out how to work my way to that punchline. Mm -hmm. I have to figure out how to get there, Um, which is sometimes an easier process to me, working backwards than trying to force a story. Well, one of the things, and again, this was another great piece of advice that was given to me by you when we talked, we had uh, talked about writing and you always said not to try to make something funny, but find the funny in something. It's the realest way to write comedy is to find the funny in a situation as opposed to trying to make the funny happen, which I think is always, always comes across as forced when you're trying to make something funny instead of just, you know, the perfect example was, I had been on this project where I was working where they were pairing comics with like um, YouTube or Vine or Instagram famous people. And we were coaching them for their first live performance. And I had this kid, really sweet kid named Lohanthony. And uh, he was this openly gay, like 16 year old kid. And we sat down and we're talking and he's, I'm like, well, what do you want to talk about on stage? And he's like, well, I was just going to rant. And I'm like, okay, well, you're 16. What are you going to rant about? <laughs> and, you know, he starts telling me how he wants to talk about, you know, Trump and Trump being a bully and all this stuff. And I go, okay, well, here's the thing. You're 16 and openly gay. I would rather know about that than you trying to pick a big su- subject like that and trying to tackle a big subject like that when the more fascinating thing is like, what is it like being 16 years old and openly gay? That's your story. And he went on stage and he's trying to do this opening bit. <laughs> and he goes, uh, hi, my name is Lohanthony and I love Chipotle, right? And I'm waiting for him to do the rest of the bit. And he just stops. And he goes, this is really hard. And I go, yeah. I'm like, let me help you out a little bit. Why do you love Chipotle? And he's like, well, I love Chipotle because they really care about how they make your food. And I said, let me stop you right there. Because no, they don't. But what's funny, (laughs) I go, what's funny is that you think they do. And that the most, uh, the healthiest relationship you have in your life is with the people at Chipotle. I go, take that truth. And that's the funny part. And it was teaching him how to find the funny in the actual story. Like, here's what's funny about this. The reason why you got stuck and stopped was because you were trying to force something funny. Yeah. You assumed that saying, I love Chipotle would get me to uproariously laugh. And I'm like, and then you just gave up. Yeah. It's It's a process. Yeah, and it always amazes me how unconfident new comics are about their truth. That they don't think that what they're experiencing is funny or or people, you know, are doing is funny. How much do you bounce back and forth between the notebook and on, on stage? When you perform a bit, do you go back in and fix it in the notebook? 
or do you, once you bring it on stage, do all your revision work on stage? Um, usually what I'll do is I'll work stuff out straight from the notebook and then, but I will pay very close attention to what happens on stage. Like, okay, maybe this word isn't working or maybe this particular wording of the bit isn't working. Where can I fix it? You know, and I'll record and I'll listen to myself and I'll be like, all right, well, that worked one night. I'll also listen to the people in comedy that like I respect that watch my set. If somebody's like, hey, I thought of this great tag for you, blah, blah, blah. I'm always going to listen to that person because they're watching as an audience member their view of it may be different from mine i know a lot of comics that i mean i literally saw a comic brush somebody off completely that offered them a tag and it's like you never know what's gonna work i've had people give me tags that were like first year comics and i'm like man that worked great that worked really great there and i didn't see it because i'm so close to the bit I don't see where there's room for that, but you do watching it as an audience member. So it's really important to like take note of what people are noticing about the bit or I'll do bits and people will tell me that really doesn't make sense in what you said there. And I go, then I'm not communicating what I want correctly. So then I have to go back to the drawing board and work on it. And it's, you know, it takes a lot of work. Some bits right off the gate, they're just great bits and they work. But the majority of the bits take time and take wording and timing and everything to perfect. And that's part of the art of what this is, is going up on stage and having something do go from like marginal laughs to a little bit better to finally full on guffaws. But it takes that work, that process of, oh, I got to add this to it. Oh, last night I did something off the cuff and it really added to this. And it's paying attention to stuff like that. So I will record my sets quite often, as much as I hate listening to myself. I will <laughs> record my sets and force myself to listen to it and, uh, and force myself to just pay attention to what's getting a reaction. Because that's the only way you're going to know if something's working. Now, you've got multiple specials now. And your first one you said took you 15 years to get done. And, you know, the next one, what'd you have? A year in between one and two? This last one, what a story. It's nuts. So what happened with this last one was kind of crazy. So I was offered an HBO half hour. And then a few, like within like, I think I want to say even a couple of weeks, Amazon came in with an offer for an hour. And both of them were basically being shot in the same year, only five months apart. And so like five or six months apart, I essentially had to do a half hour for HBO because my team came to me and they were like, well, we have this order, this offer from HBO. We have this offer from Amazon. Which one do you want to do? And of course, like the sociopath I am, I went both. Um, And I explained to them my reasoning, which was, you know, the first special was for HBO Latino. That's, you know, part of my core audience. It's part of my culture. I want to build a good relationship with these people. I want to do this half hour. I've already worked with them once before and I want to do this. And then with Amazon, I was like, this gives me exposure to a whole new crowd of people. And by the time the Amazon special would have been coming out, the HBO special would have been out already. 
it would have been out. There'd be no conflict. There'd be no issues with me doing press for either. And so I very, very reluctantly, my team agreed because I only had about five months to write a special, which is insane. Um, when you think about all the work that goes into a special, you should never take less than a year, in my opinion, because you need to write the material, um, work the material out, tour with the material, and then film it. So it takes so long to get to the point where the special is ready. And here I was, and I only had about five to six months. So I called up my buddy, Jason, Jason Schneider, whom I love. And we had worked on a short film together. And I was like, you want to help me with this comedy special? <laughs> he was like, sure. So he sat down with me and I told him all these stories that I wanted to put in the special. And he came to every single show and he would record and write down and take notes on everything that worked and everything that didn't work. And then we would go back and I would workshop the things that didn't work and figure out why they didn't work and if they would work. We had a whole bit that we had to just take out because it never worked. But I still have it in my notebook. Like, one day I'm going to get this bit right. I'm going to get this bit right one day. Maybe not for right now, but I'm going to get this bit right. And so a lot of it was that kind of work. And then by the time we got to filming the special, you know, I just remember when the second show was done, it was so much work. It was just this breath of like, oh, thank God. Uh, that All that five months of pressure and work and nonstop, it was nonstop work. I worked nonstop during those months. I went and I did any, any shows I could do, any road work I could do. Again, I was in podunk bars doing 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minute sets, working out this hour of material in 20 minute chunks, essentially. And it was definitely the biggest test I've ever had, but like, it was so worth it because at the end of the special, I was so happy with everything because I, I handpicked so many things about the special that's on Amazon now. I handpicked my everything from the way I looked to the way the stage looked was part of the team that I handpicked and created. Mm. And having that kind of creative control over something was amazing. Being able to say, this is the look I want. This is, this is how I want the stage to look. This is how I want to be presented on the stage. This is the venue I want. Like having the control over that was so amazing. Like I, I don't think I, I could ever go back to not having that much control again. It's like, no, I stand now. I still get to pick all my people that I want around me. Now you've been incredibly generous with your time. We've been talking for over an hour so far. So I do need to be conscious and let you go, but I do want to, Talk a, a couple of quick things before I let you go. Um, we bitched a lot about some of the more evil people in the community when we started out. But for me, and I don't know if it was the same for you, I'm only here today because there were a lot of guys that were veterans when I started that kind of threw me on their shoulder and went, no, don't do this, do that. You, you're better than that. You know, yeah. pointing stuff out. Who are some of the people that really were in your corner? from jump that that helped you along man i mean besides people like gladys besides people like you who 
were always open to giving me advice when I would ask for advice, when I would ask for help or guidance. You know, you don't find that a lot. A lot of times when you ask for guidance, you get brushed off or people get rude, but it's people like you, Gladys, Wally Collins, um, definitely Angelo. Angelo was always there for me. Greer Barnes, uh, always there for me too. Like a lot of these amazing comics, you know, even some randos that were just nice to me in the moment, like Greg Giraldo. I had a beautiful uh, one-time encounter with Greg Giraldo that just made me a fan for life, uh, where he was sitting at the edge of a bar in Hamburger Harry's, and and I walked in with my then boyfriend, and I said, "Oh my God, that's Greg Giraldo." I was like, "That's one of the most amazing comics I've ever seen is sitting right at that bar." And I walked up to him and I was like, hey, I just wanted to say that I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a comic too. Um, uh, so is my boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, I'm going to tape my Comedy Central half hour. Do you guys want to come to the taping? Like, I'm, I'm going right now. And I was like, what? And he walked me and my then boyfriend over and we sat in the audience and watched his Comedy Central present. And I was blown away at his kindness and... Uh, it's funny because in the audience was also another person who's always been there for me, Sarah Contreras. Sarah's always been there for me. Um, you know, people like Leanne, people like, like just these Carol Montgomery, um, Thea Vidal, Yamanika, who, who have always, people that I came up with and people that were way ahead of me that were just the kindest most thoughtful individuals I learned from every headliner I worked with and they were I was so lucky to have worked with an amazing amazing group of headliners that were that taught me like Bobcat Goldweight I worked with um Rick Overton whom I love yeah uh just these great human beings and I was lucky enough to have a good brotherhood and sisterhood of comedians that really did look out for me and you're right, you should concentrate more on those people that really helped us out, other than the, you know, the douchebags we had to deal with. Uh, it's both. They both shape you in different ways. We do, yeah. But, but thank God we got the good side, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, and Sarah, to me, was always one of the most underrated comics yes. I have ever seen. Brilliant. Oh, uh, absolutely brilliant. And one of the most pure performers I've ever seen on stage. What an amazing performer. All right, so I'm hoping that everyone that's watching this knows who you are and has seen your stuff because they should, but if they haven't, if someone were going to watch, you know, one of your specials for the first time to get to know you, what one do you think they should watch? Wow. Um, that's so crazy because they're all so, they're so different because they're all at me at different parts of my life. Mm -hmm. um, if you, I mean, I'm, I'm a start from the beginning type person. Like... My uh, first ever special, specifically speaking, it's on Amazon now. So yep. you can watch that one on Amazon. Um, my latest special is also on there, The Floor is Lava. But if you want the stuff in between, um, I did a 15-minute set for or a 20-minute set for HBO a Latino uh, for a program called Entrenos. You can watch that on HBO streaming. I have an HBO half hour called Easily Offended that you can watch. So you can just go and search whatever streaming thing you like, knock yourself out. <laughs> go ahead and search and see whatever you find. I'm curious what you'll find and what you watch and what you take away from it. 
Uh, yeah, and then just hit me up. Let me know what you think. <laughs> yep, and if you're going to hit her up, GinaBrielm.com, you should go there. And, and that's the best way to keep in contact with you because uh, you have that nice contact page on the website so they can get to you. Uh, she is also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. So uh, Instagram is uh, at GBrione. Everything else is Gina Brione. Yep. And uh, we, I feel like we've just touched the, the tip of what we can talk about. So maybe you'll come back and do this again with me someday. Absolutely. I would love to. Beautiful. And uh, stay safe for the rest of quarantine. Thanks. You too. All right. Thank talk you. to you guys soon. It's really fun listening to people who've achieved so much and yet so much want to be on stage, so much love being on stage. And, and that's true with Gina, and that's true with most of the people we talked to here at the Comedy Legacy Series. Um, one thing that unites all of us is our love for this art form, our love for stand-up comedy. And Gina is no exception. And you can see that love whenever you go and you watch her specials, which I, I hope you do. And if you see her at the club, you know, talk to her. She is so sweet and so approachable. Um, and you guys can learn so much from her experience. We are going to be back next week with another episode. Remember, new episodes drop on YouTube every Monday. Uh, and you can also catch us wherever you get your audio podcasts. Uh, Watch, uh, like, subscribe, and comment on iTunes. That would greatly help us out. We will be back next week with another great guest here at the at the Comedy Legacy Series. Uh, but for everyone here, uh, including my guest Gina Brion, all the uh, producers and editors at New Media Comedy, I'm Jim Andrinos. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.